There we go. Hey, listeners, this is William Sterling, and you are listening to the Killer Mediums podcast, where we talk about all your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is bad horror tropes done well, specifically redemption arcs. We are joined by guest Brandon Applegate. As a warning, this is a very spoiler-heavy podcast, so if you want to dodge spoilers for any of today's major topics, including The Shining Book, The Shining Movie, Doctor Sleep, or Midnight Mass, please turn back now. With all that out of the way, let's get spooky. Coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Brendan, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Hey, William, doing great. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Of course. Uh, we were kind of saying this before I hit the record button, but when I saw the anthology you're putting out with the bad horror tropes done right, and, it, and with this podcast being all about horror tropes, it was like, I have to have him on. <laughs> it, it it works so well on so many levels. Uh, yeah, I was, I was really happy you reached out. Yeah. Um, before we dive into the stories and the books and everything else, just kind of giving giving you the stage here for a minute. Who are you? What's yeah. your niche in the horror community? All good questions, William. <laughs> <laughs> no, so uh, like I said, my name is Brandon Applegate. Uh, I uh, am an author and now an editor uh, within, I guess, within the horror community. I, I do focus on uh, horror fiction specifically, but I released uh, my own book, uh, which is a, a which is a short story collection called Those We Left Behind and Other Sacrifices last year. Uh, and then this year, uh, kind of looking for another project, I decided to uh, edit another book called uh, It Was All a Dream, uh, an anthology of bad horror tropes done right, which is kind of why we're talking today. Uh, but I've been doing this kind of stuff, writing, uh, editing uh, kind of stuff for a good few years now. And yeah, always, uh, always happy to chat about it for sure. <laughs> yeah, I know. I remember those we left behind coming out a year ago and just being blown away by the cover. And then it was all a dream. Oh, yeah. You dropped the cover for that one too. And that seems like it's kind of becoming a trademark for you is just having these badass covers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's, I, I think covers are really important for books. You know, I, I mean, the, the phrase is don't judge a book by its cover, but since when have, uh, since when have people followed that advice? You know, uh, I think, I think it's incredibly important to have something attractive on the front of your book. And I've been really fortunate to work with, with some incredibly talented artists. Uh, for those we left behind, uh, I worked with Christopher Castillo Diaz, who is a uh, Peruvian artist who uh, I met on Fiverr of all places, but I was just trying to find somebody who could do kind of what I had in mind and some of his other work really, really rung true for me. Uh, and he and I have kept working together too, because he actually does the interior illustrations for It Was All a Dream. Uh, and then uh, Evangeline Gallagher is the Gallagher is the cover artist uh, for the for it was all a dream and their work is is absolutely phenomenal. So I've I've been really fortunate in the artists I've been able to work with. That's one of my favorite parts of some of these new anthologies that are coming out is the interior illustrations mm -hmm. that I'm seeing. Like I think you posted one on Twitter the other day with a bunch of uh, apocalyptic clowns riding in, around in a car <laughs> off to do something dirty. <laughs> I was like, that is yeah, that I was the illustration. <laughs> that is the illustration for Tom Coombs' uh, story, uh, which is uh, also about a clown apocalypse, uh, and it's a it's a great story. Uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, Christopher's illustrations for the interior. Of this are really great and i think the reason you're seeing more of it is probably because there's a lot of people who are in the same uh, uh in the same age bucket as me producing these anthologies right now uh, and we all grew up with uh, alvin schwartz and scary stories to tell in the dark right. and steve Bell and that whole bit so you know that to me i i've always loved an illustrated horror anthology so uh that's uh, it's yeah. something i wanted to do right out of the gate yeah and it it's it is working uh splendidly <laughs> thanks so let's start talking about the the horror tropes themselves. So if we've got a whole yeah. anthology here and we're doing a whole episode about bad horror tropes done right, help talk mm -hmm. me through what makes a 
bad horror trope because that is one of those <laughs> things that defines our genre right like we all know the rules right. of the genre we all know the tropes that we're playing with in yep. your eyes when does a trope kind of wear out its welcome and become one of these cringy horror tropes as opposed to hey final girl i see her that's who that's gonna be um or, or a trope <laughs> that you get excited yep. about recognizing like what's the line here for you for sure yeah no i think I think what makes a trope bad, it, it can come in a couple of forms, right? One form is is just overdone to the point of, uh, overdone overdone to the point of saturation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so you have, uh, I, th I think one that's done to that degree uh, is the is the cat jump scare, right? So that <laughs> that thing where a cat jumps out of a closet or a bird flies out of a bush, uh, or or something like that, and it happens in every single horror movie, and it's just just this this way of dissipating tension, but it's it's done to the point where you almost know it's coming. Like, oh, there's a noise in that cabinet. That's definitely going to be a cat, and that is a cat. Right. Uh, the <laughs> Right. <laughs> we're only 20 minutes into the movie it's no way it's the monster already <laughs> uh <laughs> and so you can you can literally time yourself based on that so when it's overdone to the point of saturation i think is 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 one of the ways a trope can can become bad i think another way that a trope can become bad though and this is the way that is slightly more nefarious and some of the stories in the book actually deal with this uh in in some really interesting ways is when a trope actually becomes hurtful to a group of people you know that there are there are stereotype tropes there are uh tropes of you know there's more than one story in this book uh dealing with uh the idea that is espoused in so many uh movies especially older movies uh that you know uh people with mental illnesses are to be feared you know because they might be a psycho killer or something like that and there's more than one uh, more than one story in this book that deals with those uh and so i think uh you can it it can kind of tropes can kind of go bad in a silly way or they can go bad in a much more serious and much more harmful way uh and one of the things that i wanted to do with the book honestly is focus on those things one you know how can we get some levity out of this situation in, in some of the more funny ways and then two how can we give uh people who have experience with uh with the the stereotypes and these more stereotypical and potentially more hurtful tropes the ability to speak back into it and maybe take it back a little bit so i thought that was uh an interesting thing to do yeah i love that um so then for today with this episode like we, we've kind of got layers of this episode we've got, we've got the bad horror tropes main theme and then we've got the redemption yeah. arc as a bad horror trope theme that we're going to attack um, so where does yeah. the redemption arc horror trope kind of fall into your mentality here with bad horror tropes? Um, is is well, it one that could be done well? Well, obviously it could be yeah. done well. Uh, but what are the pitfalls yeah. here? What are the pitfalls for a bad redemption arc? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a good question. The reason I wanted to do this today is because the redemption arc is honestly a little bit close to my own heart. Like, uh, you know, I've... Uh, it's one it's one that I keep track of uh I, I look at uh you know we we're going to talk about you know spoiler alert here in a few minutes we're going to get start started talking about The Shining which is one that I feel like does a redemption arc both well and not well depending on which version of it you're talking about yeah. I think where I where it tends to draw the line or where I tend to draw the line in a good redemption arc versus a bad redemption arc is you know a redemption arc makes you ask the question, what has this person done to redeem themselves? And is it, and is it equal to what they've done wrong? You know, like what's the, is it, uh, is it, is what they've done to excuse their behavior worth it in the end? Right. Uh, and, you know, and, and it's not necessarily that I think that uh, fiction has the, uh, has has some great moral obligation to to you know paint a paint things as being morally black or white or being you know right or wrong you know we don't get to really uh as writers uh make that determination and you know unlikable protagonists all that stuff are still a thing but and and with good reason but i think your inclusion of a redemption arc in a piece of fiction invites the reader to make that determination or invites the watcher to make that determination right uh and and when it doesn't 
when the when the juice isn't worth the squeeze i think that's what makes a redemption arc a little bit hard for me <laughs> good phrase i like that <laughs> thanks yeah I, I like this idea that every movie doesn't have to have a redemption arc like we we have some insufferable protagonists that just stay insufferable oh, yeah. we've got some good guy protagonists that stay good guy the whole time but like if you're gonna try to sell us on a redemption arc like you're saying Right. there's got to be some buy-in they've got to do some actions to absolve them of whatever they did in act one they have to learn from it they have to grow from it um right and yeah let's let's go ahead you you started us off by mentioning the shining here so we're yeah. going to talk about the book and the movie the shining so i know your answer to this already but let's just go ahead and say it for the sake of having it out there uh, in your mind, which of these does yeah. the redemption arc well? Which of these does the redemption arc not as well? And kind of why? So there's a lot of gray area in my answer to that question, William. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I actually went through, uh, I reread the last few chapters of The Shining, uh, and, and I also rewatched the movie just a couple of nights ago, kind of in preparation for this episode, because I didn't want to sound, uh, I didn't want to be working on, you know, like two-year-old information. It's been a while yeah. since I read the book uh, and, and, and saw the movie. And, you know, watching, watching the movie, reading the book, they're two extremely different experiences. And I think that the interesting thing about, well, we'll start with the book. So with the book, uh, I think the interesting thing about Jack is that the whole thing is set up for him to actually have a redemption arc. There's this moment towards the end. So, I mean, if you haven't read The Shining or, and you're trying to, and you don't care about spoilers, keep listening to me talk about it. I'll explain a little bit of what happens. Uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, Jack has gone, uh, wacko in the in the hotel he's chasing his family around with a croquet mallet in the book it's a croquet mallet in the book not an axe uh <laughs> and then uh he goes ahead and uh he chases uh danny his danny's his little son uh through the hotel with the intent to murder him right mm -hmm. the question for me when reading the shining as a book or watching the shining as a movie is always this is the hotel actually uh, controlling Jack's behavior or are the beings in the hotel actually controlling Jack's behavior or did they just convince him to act this way those are two that, that that's a subtle differentiation but it's very important right because uh, with uh, if they just were able to convince Jack to you know essentially attempt to murder his family then that would make Jack an almost completely irredeemable character right because if you can be talked into doing that that's a horrible thing and you should not be anywhere near your family right you should go get help uh <laughs> right. but if but if your actions are being controlled then there is no real redemption arc because you were never there in the first place right the hotel was there in the first place right. or the outside factor was there in the first place i think the hotel in many ways in the shining is used as a uh uh, as a as a metaphor for alcohol addiction uh which uh is, is something you know i've uh experienced family members with alcohol addiction i know stephen king when he wrote the book was dealing with an alcohol problem himself or was maybe on the other end of it i forget where it lays in his timeline but uh you know either either way you know that i think i think the hotel itself is a, a metaphor for that addiction and it kind of depends on whether or not jack gets an, a redemption arc in that book depends on where you put the onus for action right towards the end of the book as jack is chasing danny with a croquet mallet and with the intent to kill him he literally stops himself and he says and he tells his son to run so he exercises his own agency he stops himself from doing what the hotel is trying to get him to do which is that external force the hotel the alcohol whatever it is that that's a metaphor for he stops himself from doing it tells his son to run his son runs at which point uh you know danny basically tells him you know the hotel's gonna explode because of the boiler which you know the whole bit and so jack has to go take care of the boiler and, and both he and the hotel are on board with making sure the hotel doesn't explode so he runs down there and takes care of that unsuccessfully of course but so and so that book allows jack torrance a redemption arc in that 
he exercises his own will over the external force that's applied against him in order to make sure his son and his uh, his wife and you know uh, dick halloran in this one live through the experience and ends up ends up essentially sacrificing his own life the question of whether that's a good redemption arc or whether that is a worthy redemption to me lies very much in the first question I asked, which is, is the hotel totally in control of Jack's actions or is he capable of being talked into this, right? And so... I think the book answers the question because he fights it off at the end. I think it's the hotel entirely in the book. Right. And so in a way it's the worthy redemption arc. I'll stop there. Cause I want to see what you have to say about all this. William. No, you're, you are dead on with my own thoughts. Um, really? I, I think a lot of the evil in the book is the house exerting itself on Jack, uh, not Jack in the book, John in the book. Oh, right, right. I always forget uh, it, that. Is, <laughs> main character in book. Um, yeah. and, and we get a couple of these moments throughout the book where you really see John trying to pull away from that. And like you said, that like that ultimate scene of him stopping in the hallway and saving his son through his own action shows us that differentiation. I think, and and I'm sure you're about to spin off into this too, but yeah. um Stephen King, like very openly dislikes The Shining as a movie because I think yeah. in the movie it does not play that angle really at all. The house, the doesn't. I was about to say the house, <laughs> the the hotel is yeah. clearly an influencer on him, and it's doing things to make Jack become more and more unhinged. But we see in the very first scene of the movie, Jack is already unhinged. Like he is already oh, yeah. like. It, he is full Jack Nicholson from the gun. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, well, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, he's a he's a monster. Well, before he gets to the outlook in the movie, uh, that yeah. was uh, and it, it, it had been a couple of years before I, since I had seen uh, the movie, uh, but I watched it a couple of days ago just uh, because I, I had this podcast coming up and I wanted to to be able to to speak intelligently about it. Uh, but I. Uh, I was, I was honestly like, this is an opinion I've held for a long time that, that Jack in the movie was, a, was, was the monster long before he got to the overlook. I was shocked at the things that I had honestly missed in Kubrick's interpretation of, of the source material that I, I had either missed or had forgotten about that were just laid all over the ground at the beginning of that movie where it's like, no, Jack's not a good guy. No. <laughs> never was so i can i can honestly see why stephen king uh was was irritated by the the kubrick version of the shining uh and i see it a lot clearer now than i ever have just reading his interviews and stuff like that because uh he <laughs> he he wrote a character that was intended to be a good man that was you know that was in uh, that was influenced heavily and basically forced away from that goodness by an external entity uh and yeah what Kubrick did was, was just, he wrote the Joker. It's like one bad day, you know, yeah. like, cause, cause yes. <laughs> Jack Torrance in the movie is easily, uh, is, is not in a good place. And all it takes is that little bit to just kind of sort of topple him over the edge. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. uh, I think you said in the book that the, the hotel is kind of acting as a metaphor for alcoholism. And even in the beginning of the book, I don't, I don't want it to come across as we're saying that like he was this great person in the beginning of the book and then the hotel made right, him sure, he sure, was bad course. in the beginning of the book too like he he just broke his son's arm in the book but again there was right. this external influencer of the alcohol uh right, driving right. him to do that and it, we kind of see him go to the overlook as a way to sober up from that uh mm -hmm. as him taking some ownership of the bad thing he had done and trying to recover and bounce back from it and i think we see the beginning of a redemption arc there uh in the yeah. book that again we don't have in the movie yeah. he's just nuts well and you know <laughs> and you know that's one of the things that i've actually that that 
that going back through the book and going back to the movie you're right like he's 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 imperfect he's flawed he's he's done some terrible things the the whole thing with breaking or dislocating danny's arm at the beginning was one of those things where when uh because i watched the movie first and then i reread the last few chapters of the the book and when i watched the movie and uh wendy is is talking to the doctor that comes to the house uh about uh about the the incident with jack and the arm dislocation uh it it uh it's one of those things that every time you see that it just sort of drops your jaw, you know, like, Holy crap, they're already in a bad spot. And so you're right. He's, he's, uh, he's trying, but there's a certain amount of me that wonders. And if I ever meet Stephen King, he may slap me in the back of the head for saying this. (laughs) It might not be very nice, but there's a certain part of me that wonders how much of a, oof, this is rough how much of a cop-out the hotel really is like that external force that blaming of the alcohol or the blaming of the hotel for your actions and not taking responsibility for that is is i think a sort of defining characteristic of of jack torrance in the movie certainly uh but but potentially even john torrance from the book but you know getting back into the movie itself like one one of the things that i like that kubrick did which by the way is jack nicholson capable of not playing an unhinged character like there's very few (laughs) the closest thing i can think of is when he's in the bucket list and he's trying to just be this like slightly crazy old guy going off and doing (laughs) doing something morgan freeman but even then like he's the he's the twisted friend of the group (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it's a normal thing i can imagine yeah, I mean, you you gotta you gotta love the man, but like he was born with a face for that role, uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, looking looking at the movie and looking at his arc, he is consistent from beginning to end, man. Like the yeah, uh, I always look at I rewatch. I always used to look at uh, the scene in the bar, the first scene in the bar where the bartender uh, offers him the the, the drink you know uh, and and jack literally says i would give my soul for a drink and the bartender pops up behind the bar (laughs) and 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 offers him a drink it's (laughs) it's it's oh it's this wonderful uh just very uh devilish imagery but i've always looked at that scene in particular as a tipping point but i think the real tipping point on my most recent rewatch, the real tipping point comes in with uh, with Wendy in just the previous scene where he's writing and we find out, you know, later that he's just writing gibberish, you know, all work and no play. Uh, but uh, but he's he's writing uh, or no, he's dreaming is what it is. This is the dream scene. So he's dreaming and he has like a night terror. He screams in his dream. Wendy goes in and wakes him up. And when she goes in and wakes him up, Danny also comes in and Danny's got bruises down his neck. And Wendy blames him for the bruises on Danny, even though there's there's really no way Jack could have done that uh, in the in the very recent you know past. He was sitting there sleeping. Uh, and I think that's the tipping point for Jack that's the thing that pushes him over because when he goes into the bar he's already talking about them like he's so so angry and 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 you know near violence uh uh, potentially you know uh, wanting to hurt them and so it doesn't take much for the bartender to push him over and i think that really is the difference between the john torrance and the jack torrance is that jack from the movie i think he was already there (laughs) and that and then and then at the end of course there's no redemption arc there's no redemption arc in the shining the movie not for jack because i mean he he goes out screaming in the snow that's just the uh, that's just the end of it uh so in a way i like that arc for jack a little bit better because it makes no excuses for itself right uh whether it is the hotel or whether it is him jack is a consistent character but at the and and it and he doesn't it doesn't blame an outside entity for his actions uh, as much. But people like a dynamic character too, so it could go either way. I'm not here to tell anybody that their opinion on The Shining is wrong either. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I think it just plays as a completely different story. Whereas the book is this redemption arc we're talking about. The yeah. movie almost plays more like a weird copier, but the movie almost plays more like hereditary, like where you see the mom just like devolve more and more and more. And then she just snaps at the one point. 
Like yeah. the mom doesn't bounce back in that movie. Jack doesn't bounce back in the movie. They're just the villain here. But I think this kind of leads us well into the next movie we were going to talk about with Doctor Strange is uh, not Doctor Strange, Doctor Sleep. <laughs> um, yeah, that would be a weird double feature. Um, oh, but yeah, oh, Doctor, wow, wow, it really would. <laughs> Doctor Sleep and Mike yeah. Flanagan really pick up the ball with this idea of alcoholism and people mm -hmm. battling with alcoholism trying to regain control of their own lives where they give us Danny all grown mm -hmm. up really feels like a proxy for John Torrance from the first yeah. Shining movie he has done some bad stuff in his past that he's trying to atone yeah. for um, he is trying to find a way to separate himself from those bad things in his past to really make himself again. And then he gets sucked into the hotel just like before. Um, totally different story, but at least that side of things and that character arc, I think there's some really fun parallels here to talk about maybe. Oh, I agree completely. And I, I think it's really cool that you mentioned the idea of of, of Danny in this scenario or Danny and Dr. Sleep as a proxy for John Torrance uh, in the in the Shining the book uh, I think that's how because Flanagan who by the way Mike Flanagan is seriously one of my favorite filmmakers uh, in currently working I love Mike Flanagan and uh, Haunting of Hill House is like that that is that lives very close to my heart I love that show yeah uh, and and I and I like so much of his other work too I've seen Dr. Sleep the movie I will preface this by saying I have not read Dr. Sleep the book so uh we won't go there or you can feel free but I will okay. uh but <laughs> but uh but Dr. Sleep uh in the movie version uh I, I love very much but I think the fact that I I think I think what Flanagan does in that movie, and maybe Stephen King does it in the book, I'm not sure, but he really doubles down on the idea that it's the hotel's fault, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and he, uh, when when Danny walks into room 237 and just his whole demeanor changes and he's, uh, you know, struggling not to do something horrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you, you see that thing happen to him like what happened to John Torrance in the book that it that part of it to me is much more connected to the book than it is to the movie yes. whereas you know yeah. the the rest of the movie of dr sleep very much seems to follow up on on, on kubrick's story uh so i i find that to be a really interesting parallel so i was listening to a couple of interviews with mike flanagan getting ready for this and he said that a, a big a big thing he wanted to accomplish here was to marry the book yeah the shining and the the movie the shining to find some common ground that they could both kind of like find peace with um yeah. in the book dr sleep it plays very very similar to the movie until they go to the overlook hotel right and at that point in the book it's really odd because the overlook hotel doesn't exist anymore because the boiler exploded um, right so when Stephen King writes the book they kind of go there for the ultimate showdown with Rose the Hat there's the showdown in this big open space where the Overlook had been and then yep. the book's kind of over so I like Flanagan's approach a lot better than that because right. the movie right. left the hotel still standing so we've still got this right. playground in to, to work in and then he can really play up these connections between Okay, it was a lot of the uh, the hotel's fault, even though the first Shining movie didn't show you that. Now we see Danny there, and we see it corrupting Danny also, and it mm -hmm. it gives us that side of things a lot more. Um, oh man, there were there were two scenes, and you're talking through the movie right now, and I'm remembering these scenes that that uh, just uh, checked all my nostalgia boxes. Uh, one of them was the you talked about the showdown with Rose the Hat. Uh, I love I love that it takes place on the staircase yes. where the showdown between Wendy and Jack took place in the movie. It's the perfect venue for that. Oh my god! And and Rose is in the place of Jack, and Danny's in the place of Wendy. Uh, in that in that uh, it, kind of how they're arranged in the scene, uh, absolutely brilliantly done. And then the and then the other one I'm remembering is that uh, when they when they made Jack the new bartender. 
mm-hmm. uh, that that moment when <laughs> oh my god i was i i i i think i audibly gasped when he was the bartender <laughs> there were so many scenes when they go back into the hotel that just like had me like cheering in the in the yeah unfortunately empty theater um <laughs> the the trailers like showed us that they were going back to the overlook but didn't really show us anything that was going on in there so yeah when he's when he runs into jack yeah. at the bar that was amazing when he's yeah. hobbling down the down the hallway with an axe again just like this is yeah this is so great because the book like <laughs> none of that happens in the book so i didn't know what to expect as soon as they walked through those doors and it was it was perfect Flanagan is brilliant. In this case, Flanagan was absolutely brilliant to give us uh, a vision that married the two or married the themes of the book and the movie previous, but also, man, did it check some fanboy boxes for me. Oh, yeah. So that was fan service done right. <laughs> I loved it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, I, I like Danny for a redemption arc better than I like Jack for a redemption arc. And maybe it's funny because Danny actually, like, spoiler alert, at the beginning of that movie, leaves somebody for dead and we assume they do die. Uh, okay, the, this is a very hard conversation, but the person that he leaves to die is an adult with who, who, had, who had wanted to be where they were, maybe. I don't know. I'm questioning myself here. I always amplify in my head when a character does bad things to children. I'm like, oh, that's pure evil. You know, like with the with the Jack Torrance character, he broke his son's arm. You know, that's he didn't kill anybody. But at the same time, it's it's just this awful thing. And then he goes to kill them, you know, uh, and, yeah. and, and he absolutely would have if he could. So I, I tend to amplify it in my head when children are involved. Maybe that's just me. But uh, but with the with the Danny thing, it seems almost accidental and like he's backing away from it, even as that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and it feels almost sympathetic the way Flanagan plays it, which I think was really, really smart considering how John is played in the book when when Danny's kind of backing away he's not actively doing harm to to the person the way that Jack was breaking his son's arm the way that Rose the Hat and the the rest of her crew mm-hmm. are like consuming that kid in the middle of the movie which holy shit oh my god the baseball kid baseball holy kid. wow um, yeah but they, it, that baseball kid scene goes you you compared the movie to 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 hereditary so i'll do it too like there's <laughs> one scene in hereditary everybody knows the scene that we're talking about yep. that just it's like oh i can hardly watch the movie again because of that scene and yep. with dr sleep it's the same thing with the baseball kid it, it's uh, that that is just the ultimate and heart-wrenching it absolutely destroys you i think the movie's really trying to intentionally draw a line between like doing harm to others and being around when harm is being done to others i'm not using my words well here yeah it's like a partial (laughs) responsibility for the harm but it's not like a direct action you know right so the second one you can be redeemed from maybe like maybe right you have some self-loathing after that you want to do better moving forward you know that you should have helped um and you yeah. know that next time you're in a situation like that you will step in and help enter abra yeah. versus the other one where you're choosing to destroy a child like no you're yeah. done i you're, you're right. totally written off in my book i don't care what <laughs> good deeds you do throughout the rest of the book like it's you're you're right. you're over right exactly Oh man. <clears throat> oh my gosh. And Dr. we just Sleep, like yeah. perfect segue Dr. to Sleep Midnight Mass too. Yeah. So, well, I mean, we're talking about Flanagan, so let's talk about Midnight Mass. Because yeah. that uh all right. So my journey with Midnight Mass is a little bit uh interesting. <laughs> I'm I, I've got a friend who's probably gonna listen to this that basically made me watch Midnight Mass because uh, I I'll I'll say this. I was so I watched the first three episodes and I didn't like it at all. Mm-hmm. so my journey with midnight mass is a little bit different i stopped watching uh like 
partway through the third episode and I didn't come back to it for a while. And the reason why I did that was, so I'm a, this is another trope that I have trouble with, but it's, it's also like a, it's mostly a filmmaking trope, which is like, I guessed again, spoilers. I guessed the vampire plot within the first three episodes. I knew what was going on with, with, uh, with the priest. I forget his name. Was it, what's the priest's name? Father Paul. Father Paul. Paul? Yes. Yeah. But yeah, (laughs) no, I believe you're right. But I, uh, but I knew what was going on with, with him. Like I, I, I had it all figured out and it took, and I had it figured out like within the first episode or two, largely because of the age makeup right like many mm-hmm. of the characters have age makeup and you can tell and the only reason a filmmaker ever uses age makeup and not just an elderly actor is because they're, they're going to de-age that character at some <laughs> yeah. point and so <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna de-age that character at some point either in a flashback or you know in in you know through some sort of magical means uh, and so i was like oh uh, he found a vampire when he went on uh, when, when he went uh, on his trip and he brought it back and now and uh, he's young again because because uh, he's a vampire and now he's gonna turn everybody else into vampires and they're gonna they're gonna de-age like I had it all figured out right but my friend was like no you need to keep watching there's more to this there's more to this there's more to this there's more to this and it took her a very long time to get me to watch the rest of the show because I didn't want to be disappointed in Mike Flanagan because I, I love his work so much uh, but once I made it past that third episode, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm a convert. I'm a fan. And there's a few reasons why I'm a fan. And one of them is the redemption arc that, that lives at the heart of this show uh, with, with the main character, Riley. Uh, who's the main character for like the first half, two thirds uh, of the show? Uh, you know, again, major spoilers, but I so he takes a little bit of the same arc as like a John Torrance right so he uh, he has a major alcohol problem he makes some terrible mistakes in this case he kills somebody he has to live with that for a long time and he does goes to jail he comes out of jail he goes back to the island but he's also the kind of person who if you kind of pay attention to his to his patterns and the way that he lives his life through the through the course of the show when he screws up or when bad things happen he will tend to tap out like he'll he'll do it you know uh that's part of what going to the island was about he was tapping out of his life on the mainland he couldn't deal with it anymore. and he's coming out of prison and stuff too so it's going to be hard to get restarted but yeah. uh but at the same time he's also uh, tapping out to a certain degree and so when he's bitten by the vampire and he turns into what he is eventually going to become, which is a you know full-fledged vampire, and he knows it, he taps out, but it's also a martyr arc. More than it is a redemption arc, it's a martyr arc because it's the only way... Uh, her name's Erin, right? Her, it's yes. the only way she it's will evil. believe... What's that? Kate yeah, Katie Siegel. <laughs> it's the only way Katie Siegel's going to believe it, right? Is is if he literally lights on fire in the middle of the lake, like, and that scene is just breathtaking. The way that he experiences it as this heavenly experience, and she experiences it as this horrific death scene, is just uh it's heart-wrenching and it's brilliant and he ends an episode on that which is just like one of the best episode endings since the one since hill house when it's like you know oh this is uh you know uh nell is the bent neck lady like that, that it's that level of like oh, oh that my episode god. <laughs> oh my gosh that episode yeah yeah um yeah so, so I feel like that that redemption arc works really well in that it is a martyrdom. He doesn't actually, like, he's not the kind of person, and he's been played as since from the very beginning of the show as not being the kind of person who is ultimately the hero, right? He's 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 just not. He'll tap out, but he uses that action to do something heroic, which is to, you know, lay the plot bare and say, you know 
this is what's happening and so in that he is he gets to redeem himself and do what he would normally do at the same time <laughs> and i think that's a really important thing for keeping these redemption arcs in good horror trope instead of bad horror trope territory is they stay true to his character you knew if you were paying any attention, you knew kind of what he was going to do in that situation. Either he was going to run away from the problem or he was just going to, like like you're saying, tap out. But the fact that he had this redemptive moment while still being honest with the character, like having all of that mm -hmm. built in, it was just glorious. glorious. Other thing I want to talk about here, though, is I'm really interested to hear you talk about Riley here because when we were talking about this episode and you were pitching the ideas to me, of, of exactly what what uh, things you wanted to, to dig into mm -hmm. or what movies, books, whatever. You said The Shining and I knew what you were talking about. Okay, book and movie and there's two different arcs there. I can see that. Uh, mm -hmm. And you said, um, you said, or I guess I said Dr. Sleep and I kind of knew where I would take that. And then you said Midnight yeah. Mass and I immediately jumped to Father Paul. Right. And then I thought about that for a second, like, okay, no, maybe he's not talking about Father Paul. Maybe he's talking about Rahul Coley's character with the sheriff. No, right. no, maybe he's nope. talking about Kate Siegel. No, maybe he's talking about Riley. There are so many potential redemption arcs built into this one show. I think we've got <laughs> this whole arena of like characters to dive into that we can talk about here, like why this works so well for each and every one of them. So with Riley, it's honest and he gets that ending yeah. hero-ish moment halfway through. And then we're left with, yeah. this, with this other gaggle of characters that are all on their own journey. So <laughs> who, who would you be inspired to talk about next? <laughs> oh, there's so many. Uh, Flanagan, with Midnight Mass, what Flanagan did, uh, he honestly outkinged Stephen King with Midnight Mass. Like that's my, <laughs> that's what I thought with it. Like it's almost a that that show is a love letter to Stephen King, and Stephen King loves a redemption arc. Uh, but you know, I think I think my second favorite redemption arc in the book or in the in the, in the book in the in the show uh, is probably Father Paul, and it's because his is sort of a his becomes a a sort of mirror backward mirror image of of riley's redemption arc right like i see those two characters and i don't think it's a mistake that flanagan spends so much time with them on facing each other on two sides of the screen right in the in, right. the, in the aa meetings i think those two characters are intended to be mirror images of each other i think riley comes from a place of uh jaded pessimism I think he is somebody who tends to, as we've talked about, tap out or give up or, or you know, stop short. Uh, and I think he's somebody who does those things because he has seen himself fail so hard at this point in his life, right? And so he's that he's that jaded counterpoint to Father Paul. Father Paul is brought down by his own uh naivety right he's he's he doesn't want to believe that this uh this vampire is what it is he wants it to be an angel he doesn't want to believe that his uh de-aging into the younger version of himself is is him becoming something monstrous he wants to believe it's miraculous he wants to believe it's a miracle and so his faith leads him in many ways to be the exact opposite of jaded which is naive uh and and when and his redemption arc is waking up from that and like i see it it really hits at the moment when bev which there are few better characters in all of horror cinema than Bev Keen uh but <laughs> at the moment when Bev finally lays her plan bare and says all right let's uh let's start figuring out who gets to get into shelter and who has to stay outside and die and at that moment Father Paul literally stands up on the steps of the church and says this is wrong 
like what you're doing here is wrong and he and he doubles down on his principles and on his faith and what he believes to be right and he doesn't allow that to happen and that to me is like because he's been he's been naive not only about the vampire not only about his own transformation but he's also been naive about who bev is for this entire show and when and when she does that he finally sheds that naivety and he says you know i see you for what you are now and i'm going to stop this i'm going to stop all of it uh, and and yeah i mean i've left myself nowhere to go but i love his art i'm a huge fan yeah, I think there's a lot of commentary on like the the difference between faith and blind faith in in the show. Right. Um, and yeah. Father Paul is unfortunately in the blind faith <laughs> category yeah. for, for so long <laughs> yeah, that it, it ultimately kills pretty much everyone on the island. Um, yeah. Nope. Nope. And the, the other characters have their strengths and flaws too, but ultimately, like if he if he doesn't stay the course that he's yeah. on so rigidly for so long, his congregation could have been saved. If he would have just taken yeah. a step back and really like considered what was going on, even like yeah. five, but you have to be able to in. see. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, until they have that midnight mass. Ha ha. Yeah. <laughs> until they have that midnight mass and the doors are locked like there is salvation yeah. to be had and then it's just freaking over <laughs> oh my god that's a that's one of the scariest scenes in the in the in the show although i gotta tell you the scene i was most afraid of and and mike i'm very grateful to mike flanagan for pulling back from this one just a little bit, just a little bit. He, he gave me this little bit of relief and I was grateful for it. Uh, Rahul Kohli's uh, character uh, in, in the show, like at the very end, when everybody knows they're going to die, the sun's about to come up, he goes to the shore, to that bridge with his son and they're going to sit there and watch the sunrise together. And I was so freaking scared that we were going to have to watch the sheriff watch his own son burn and but mike didn't do that to us yeah. he gave us the sheriff was injured he went first it was very peaceful but man was i scared that was gonna happen because <laughs> uh, that's a character that didn't deserve it at all no didn't deserve it at all no in no I think way they they tried to give him a couple of like little vices like he was yeah he was on the island so he didn't have to do the bigger job in the bigger city or something like that right. but like e even when they tried to give him those vices they they fell a little flat and you were still i was still just like fully pulling for the guy oh yeah no he, he, I, I wanted him to be the hero of the whole thing yeah. honestly yeah. <laughs> um, absolutely and rahul but i, I I'll just no, don't go ahead. praise on Raul for a second here. Every yeah, time he shows it. up in a Flanagan show, he like kills oh, it as this likable. He's he's the best. Um, <laughs> oh man, the 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 uh, the arc in Bly Manor. Yes. Holy moly. Uh, <laughs> the fact that he's the only uh, guy that can like really relate to the kids at all yeah um and is like yeah. making friends with them God. yeah no yeah. there he's 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 brilliant uh that, that's a brilliant actor and then uh and then on top of that just he, he makes you love him every time he's on screen it's outstanding yeah. but yeah no man Bly Manor, Hill House, Midnight Mass. I am forever a Mike Flanagan fan. Doctor Sleep. I haven't seen Hush yet, but I need to. <laughs> Him and Jamie yep. Flanagan. I I feel bad because Thomas Gloom and I did a whole episode on Mike Flanagan horror with heart. Um, yeah. Analysis, and the whole time I never mentioned Jamie Flanagan a single time. And I know that he's. Oh yeah. Now well, too. I mean, you kind of have to, right? Because that's yeah. the that's the right that's the co-writer. That, that's yeah. Yeah. The, the big part of that art is it comes from Jamie. Yeah. So Jamie, yes. I I know you listen to the show. <laughs> um, shout out! <laughs> cheers to cheers to you too. Uh, I I need to shout start out, saying Jamie. Mike. I need to start saying Mike <laughs> and Jamie all the time. 
Um, they've got the Midnight Club coming out tomorrow. Uh, we're recording this on oh, October. Man. 6th, Is that tomorrow? I, just I cannot wait. I need to watch it. Yeah, um, Midnight Club's going to be good. I'm looking forward to that. I'm also really looking forward to. Uh, uh, oh gosh, what is it? Uh, uh, the 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 Poe adaptation that he's going to do. Uh, yes, uh, uh, yeah. I know they're filming yeah. it now, no, or they wrapped really filming on it, or something. Yeah. But yeah, that that one looks like it's going to be much more in the vein of like the haunting series. Yeah. Like it's got yeah. their usual cast back and trying to yeah kind of roll that yeah. Very but Midnight Club is going to be outstanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going to be cool uh, stuff, man. Good stuff coming. So let's let's bring it back to your book. Uh, okay. Here to here to kind of put a capstone on the the show. Um, we've been talking about <laughs> sure. redemption arcs this whole time. The good, the bad, the ugly of it. Yeah. Um, you've got a couple of redemption arcs in the bad bad horror tropes done well anthology. Yeah. uh are there a couple that you could kind of pitch us on here uh i don't it, your book so dive into yeah. spoiler territory as much as you want to here but uh what <laughs> what story should we look oh, for? of course <laughs> of course no there there are so there's there's nothing that does like it does this with like the the laser focus that we're talking about today there's no jack torrance there's no there's no riley there's no father paul uh, in any of these but i think there are stories in this book that sort of side sidelong glance at the at the at the redemption arc uh some of the ones that that i'm thinking of uh offhand uh hail mary full of rage by jv gax is like the opposite of a redemption arc like it's a redemption arc that doesn't get to happen uh, <laughs> in, in, in many ways uh and i and i won't go into into details uh there uh, it wasn't a wedding cake by drew huff uh is definitely one where you expect there to be uh some level of redemption arc and then there uh, and then it turns out there's no need for it it wasn't even the thing that uh, that uh that that you're originally pitched on so there's uh that one's that one's one that gets a little bit psychedelic with it but there are several stories in the book those two in particular that i think of uh that sort of sidelong glance at a at a redemption arc uh but i mean the book sort of runs the gamut as far as as uh what uh what tropes you see so there's a there's a ton more in there too <laughs> yeah yeah cool yeah. um yeah isn't that, isn't that a great title though hail mary full of rage Holy <laughs> it is. i started laughing the second you said it <laughs> i love that title it's a great story too oh my god great story uh we we've got so many good stories in this book and i know i sound like i'm i'm pitching it but honestly so i'll, I'll tell you this no, is my first time for. pitch pitch away right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is my first time ever editing an anthology and i did it because like I put my own book out. I do my own writing. I, you know, I, I, I'm constantly in the, in the, in the submission grind of sending my writing to different, you know, anthologies and magazines and stuff that are out there. And like coming up with the idea for the anthology uh, happened sort of organically in a chat with some other writers. Like I have a discord room that I hang out in with some other writers and we were goofing around and uh you know coming up with the worst anthology ideas we could possibly come up with and there were some there were some pretty out there ones there was like a MAGA anthology there's some crazy stuff that, that people pitched for the for the worst possible anthologies but uh the the one that I pitched was just it was all a dream an anthology of bad tropes and I didn't have the done right on the end of it uh but it was just that and uh we we made fun of it for a second and then everybody was like, oh, no, wait a minute. That could be like, that could be fun. <laughs> and so we, started, so we started pitching, you know, ideas back and forth for it and how to make it fun. And I just, so part of the reason why I did this is because I just really wanted to see the idea come to fruition. But the other part of the reason why I did this is because I'm in that, that constant submission grind, because I'm always sending my work out there into the ether and hoping that somebody likes it uh, or sending my book out there into the ether and hoping that people like it. Uh, I wanted to understand better what it was like to think and read like an editor. I, I, I just really did. You know, I wanted to understand why an editor picks what they pick. Why, what is, what is it about a story that, cause I'd never looked at stories that way before, you know, I, I've only yeah. ever read stories uh, in already published books or, you know, I'll beta read for friends or things like that, but I'm never trying to make a decision about, 
whether or not I would take that story and fill up a limited amount of space with it uh, and, and, you know, spend a limited amount of money with, on it and, and, and that sort of decision. And so I wanted to understand what it was like to, to, to read like that. And it's a really eye-opening experience to understand even for a minute, because it's fleeting, like I'll forget and then and it'll come back to me. But it's really eye-opening to understand what it is like to have to make that sort of game time decision about a story and what it is about that story that makes you say yes or no. And the stories in this book were like what it came down to for me. And a lot of people will say this. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not, it's either, you know, some people are like, yeah, that's the way it should be. And some people are like, no, it's not. Uh, and, and there's a lot of debate over this and whether it should be this way or not, is not really the point of what I'm about to say, but what it actually comes down to is, you know, whether or not it grabs you and doesn't let go. You know what I mean? Like the stories in this book, every single one of them that made it in here, uh, even the ones from the invites, uh, are, are, are stories that, that, like from the very first word on the very first page I was absolutely invested in and so I guess I guess my point is that I'm just really proud of how this turned out because these are legitimately great stories by legitimately great authors and I think that everybody listening should check it out because it's beautiful yeah <laughs> that's a very strong pitch um not only are they all stories you're proud of like every single word of the stories were ones that grabbed you and hooked you and like all killer no filler like hell yeah, yeah. that's that's what i was aiming for <laughs> hell yeah for sure uh you know the second part of the pitch too is just that one of the things that i love about this thing is that it takes uh uh, there's a story in here, uh, Jumbies by Lyndon Nicholas, that, you know, the, the, the zombie trope has been worn down, done to death. I don't know if you like zombies. Other people do. Some people don't, but some people are sick of them at this point. Uh, it's, it, we, we hit a, a zombie renaissance here a few years back, and they were just everywhere for a long time. Uh, but it was always the Romero zombie. It was always the brainless, staggering, brain-eating, uh, you know, monster uh, that, that, you know, that is uh, inherent to, you know, America, North America. Uh, Lyndon uh, uh, takes, uh, takes the zombies back to, back to uh, his Caribbean heritage and says, you know, what are, uh, what are zombies that are not part of that Western heritage or not part of that, that Romero zombie heritage. And so you get, uh, you get a whole different view on zombies. Uh, you get a whole different view on, uh, you know, uh, lover's lane psycho killers from Eric Ragland's story, uh, which is absolutely brilliant. Uh, uh, Cormac Baldwin turns Frankenstein on its head. Like it's, it's a, if you want to see the other side of some pretty worn down tropes that actually do, and this is what I was hoping the whole time would happen, is that people with fresh perspectives would make the tropes fresh. I mean, this book, I feel like, accomplishes that goal, so. The creativity, even just in these short pitches you're saying, is just yeah, blowing me away. Like, uh, I'm very used to reading <laughs> these anthologies where, like, half of the stories are very cut and dry like the the person yeah. is experiencing something bad and evil and then bad evil thing shows up at the end of, sto of the story and it's all very cut and paste but yeah everything you're describing yeah. is just like very left field and like very different from what i'm yeah. used to so this is cool <laughs> I, i'm into it yeah um all right man well yeah no i hope you get a chance to read and i hope you enjoy it because it's it, it was a blast to put together and i hope everybody else does too because man uh i uh, I discovered a lot of new favorite authors reading stories for this book. So <laughs> I hope you do too. Nice. Um, and so one more time, uh, do you want to tell listeners uh, again who you are? Yeah. Um, what are your two books titles again? And then looking yeah. at the future, any future projects you want to pitch? Keep our eyes oh, out for man. <laughs> I'll, uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll start from the beginning. My name is Brandon Applegate. Uh, I uh, am a, a horror fiction writer and now editor. Uh, I wrote my 
uh, first collection uh, of short stories last year, Those We Left Behind and Other Sacrifices. Uh, that one's uh, done pretty well. I'm very proud of it. And then uh, I'm, I've edited the, edited the anthology this year. Uh, it was all a dream, uh, an anthology of bad horror tropes done right. Uh, and yeah, it's, uh, this is a blast. I just pitched the heck out of that. So I'm not going to do it again, uh, but, uh, uh, yeah. And as far as what's coming in the future, uh, there's a lot of question marks. I've got a novel that I'm working on. I've got, uh, I'm, I'm constantly working on more short stories. Just came up with an idea for the day or uh, earlier today. That was, uh, that I'm, that I'm hoping to, to get cranked out here within the next couple of days, which is a short story where, uh, the, uh, the ring meets the office in the form of a, uh, a cursed Zoom call. So I'm, I'm going to try to put that one together. Uh, but nothing, uh, nothing with uh, nothing with publisher uh, teeth in it just yet. But we'll uh, we'll get there shortly. And uh, the of course the anthology that I'm talking about comes out on October 18th of 2022. But you guys, it'll be well out by the time this comes out. So yeah. Uh, so you'll be able to pick it up right now. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thank you so much for spending your night with us, uh, talking to me about yeah. all of these bad horror tropes and good horror tropes and redemption arcs. Uh, this has been yeah, a lot of fun. No, it's been a blast. Yeah, it's been a blast, William. Thank you so much again for having me. This is super fun. Yeah, anytime. Uh, you, you were a great guest. I appreciate it. That just about wraps us up for this episode, though. To everybody listening at home, thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to like, subscribe, or you know, investigate the unusual murderers surrounding the streaming service of your choice. And we'll see you next time. I'm William Sterling, and this has been another episode of the Killer Mediums Podcast. Coroners tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they heard a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Mm -hmm.